Welcome, church. We are back to our regular studies of the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be studying in chapter 13 today. In the first half of the Gospel of Matthew, we've been introduced to King Jesus. We have seen the evidence that validates his claim to being the king, and we have seen the growing rejection of that rightful king by the religious leaders especially. But it's important to note that some of the people are also rejecting him outright, like the people of his hometown. We're going to see that very clearly at the end of this chapter. While many others are simply following him because of the spectacle, the drama, and the freebies, but they are not willing to commit themselves wholeheartedly to him as Messiah. They're sitting on the fence, as it were, even after all they've seen and heard. And that's not a category in Jesus' kingdom. At the end of chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus proclaims, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's pretty clear that as far as Jesus is concerned, there is no neutral. You are justified or you are condemned. Which one are you here today? The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. On your own, you are condemned already. The Bible tells us we are born with a sin nature, already rebels against God from birth, condemned from day one and sentenced to an eternity in hell unless God himself intervenes. And he did. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son to suffer your punishment in your place so that you could be free to enter into a relationship with God, be adopted into his family, and spend eternity with him. Romans 10 verse 9 states, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is what Jesus means when he says, With your words. He is calling you to decide which kingdom you will pledge your allegiance to, yours or his. There is no neutral ground, no fence-sitting. In Matthew 13, we see a very different type of teaching emphasized. Jesus has used graphic analogies or word pictures in the past. For example, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Later, he talked about building a house on sand versus building it on the rock. These were all clear word pictures with clear meanings. But now he uses parables. There are, in fact, 39 different parables in the Gospels, and seven of them in this chapter alone. Parables were a common form of teaching in Judaism. A parable is a long analogy often in the form of a story and often requiring explanation afterward in order to decipher it. And this forms the key difference in his teaching style. While the meaning of his previous analogies was fairly clear, the meaning of the parables was not. So then, why would Jesus do that? 
This was precisely the disciples' question to him in verse 10. And we're actually going to address this question before we begin to look at any of the parables themselves. So let's read the passage now. I'll ask you to turn, please, to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 1. Matthew 13 and verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying... And that's where we're going to stop for now. And then we're going to jump over to verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then jump over to verse 34. Verse 34 says, And all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And just like the disciples then needed help to understand, let's ask God for his spirit to help us understand. Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit to make clear to us your word. We acknowledge this day that spiritual truths cannot be gained by human wisdom and that we need that same help from you. I pray that you would enlighten us and encourage us as we dive into your word today. Amen. So the disciples notice that Jesus has begun teaching using parables. I'm sure if we were there with them in the crowd, we would have seen some puzzled faces on the listeners and maybe even some disgruntled muttering as people struggled to understand what Jesus was trying to say. To the disciples, it must have seemed like he was intentionally trying to obscure his message. And I would respond that in part, That's accurate. In fact, there are several good reasons for Jesus choosing to teach in parables now. And as we consider some of these reasons why Jesus chose to teach in parables, there are three key points that I want us to walk away with after studying this passage. And the first point is this. Understanding spiritual truths is a gift from God. Understanding spiritual truths 
is a gift from God. We see this in verses 10 to 12. Parables were used by teachers of that time because they were far more engaging than a dry, factual sermon. A story could be lively, interesting, intriguing, and you tended to remember a story for much longer. A parable also helped the people to see the application of the lesson far more easily so that they themselves could put it into practice. A parable helped the lesson to be relevant and practical. Jesus had some reasons for using parables that were directly relevant to him and his ministry. And we see one of those reasons in verses 34 and 35. He did so because it fulfilled Scripture. Matthew quotes the author of the 78th Psalm, who wrote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's Psalm 78, verse 2. This also gives us another reason why Jesus used parables. It was to reveal truth. The New Testament, as part of God's progressive revelation, reveals things to us that were formerly hidden. The Bible refers to them as mysteries, or in verse 11, as secrets. Jesus says to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So not only does Jesus use parables because it was it was to fulfill scripture. Not only does he use parables to reveal truth, but he also uses parables to conceal truth. And this is what has the disciples questioning in the first place. Notice what they say. Why do you speak to them in parables? The disciples recognize right away that these parables are harder to understand, and they want to know why Jesus is making it harder rather than easier. In fact, even the disciples themselves have to come to Jesus for an explanation in many cases. Jesus makes it clear that when it comes to spiritual truths, spiritual truths are revealed as a gift from God. To you it has been given. But to them, it has not been given, Jesus says. It wasn't because the disciples were so smart that they figured it out and the rest didn't. God, in his sovereignty, granted it to them. Jesus repeats this message in chapter 19, verse 11. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In Colossians 1, 27, Paul writes, To them, that is, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, he writes, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Consistently, Persistently, Scripture teaches us that these things, these spiritual truths, are revealed to us through the Spirit by God's sovereign will. Now, hold on just a cotton-picking minute, Mike, you exclaim. If that's true, then how can God hold anyone accountable for not responding to these truths if it hasn't been given to them by God? And this brings us to our second point. 
Remember, the first one was that understanding spiritual truths is a gift of God. The second point is this. Understanding spiritual truths is a responsibility of man. Understanding spiritual truths is a responsibility of man. We see this in verses 13 to 15. Now, Mark's gospel also records this same account. It's found in chapter 4, starting in verse 10. The accounts are virtually identical, except for what we can't see in our English translations. The Greek grammar, which is much more revealing. In Mark 4, verses 11 and 12, it reads like this. For those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. Now, there's a connecting phrase there, so that, or it could be translated, in order that. And it is what we call a purpose clause. In other words, Jesus gave the parables with the purpose of blinding the crowds. But in Matthew 13, verse 13, it reads just a little bit differently. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. In Matthew's passage, the connecting word because is what we call causal. It is because they see and yet do not see, because they hear and yet do not hear, that Jesus blinds their understanding. So, in Mark's gospel, we see God at work choosing to blind the audience. But in Matthew, we also see that it is God's response to the people's hard-heartedness. You see, another reason Jesus uses parables is because they reveal the heart. The disciples' heart attitude is toward God. The people's heart attitude is away from God. Jesus lays exactly the same parables out before all the people. But the difference is that the people do not understand and they walk away from both the message and the messenger. The disciples, hearing exactly the same parable, acknowledge their inability to comprehend it on their own and turn to Jesus for explanation. (laughs) Once again, we hear the echo of Jesus' words back in Matthew 12, by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. The disciples confess their need and come to Jesus. The crowds reject his message and they reject him. We see this clearly in verses 55 and 56 of this chapter. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, you could read that as an exclamation of wonder and awe. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And so on. But the next verse is very revealing. And they took offense at him. It was far more of a 
Where does he get off thinking he's something when he's really nothing? We know him. He's the carpenter's son. We know his mom. It's Mary. We, we know his brothers. Come on. And it's that kind of attitude. And by it, they condemn themselves. What about you? Which group do you identify with? Perhaps you're not quite as condescending as his townsfolk, but do you listen to the words of Scripture and respond with, well, that's, that's good for you guys, I suppose, but it's not for me. Heed Jesus' warning. By your words, you will be condemned. There will come a day when you will stand before King Jesus and your words will be brought back before you to condemn you. Jesus calls you to repent today. Repent of your stubborn willfulness and your sin while there is still time. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says this, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you persist in your stubborn refusal to submit to Jesus, thinking that you'll do all that later, consider this very carefully. Because of their stubborn refusal to accept him and his teaching, Jesus concealed any further truth from them. It was an act of judicial mercy. And here's why. You see, the more people know, the more they are responsible for. We see it in our own legal system. We don't try a child the same way we try an adult because they are children. They don't have the same experience or or understanding and can't always be held to the same level of accountability and responsibility. We might try an adult differently because we would say, you should know better. So Jesus is just in his refusal to reveal more to them because their heart attitude has been clearly demonstrated. And he is merciful as well, because it would only heap greater judgment and condemnation on them. That was why in chapter 11, verse 24, Jesus said, It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And who was the you he referred to? It was Capernaum, a city in Israel, a city of Jews as opposed to Sodom, which was a Gentile city, because he said, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And brothers and sisters, what about us? When we realize this, this truth, these truths, really, I think it calls us to respond in two key ways. I'm going to ask you to take note of these two things. Number one, we need to have a constant heart attitude of humble submission, acknowledging our need for the Holy Spirit to make things clear to us. Let me read that again. We need to have a constant heart attitude of humble submission, acknowledging our need for the Holy Spirit to make things clear to us. This needs to be lived out daily when we read his word, when we pray, when we go about our day. There is no moment in our lives when we don't need this. The enemy loves it when we get cocky and arrogant, when we think, I've got this, when we decide we are no longer going to abide in him. You ever grow roses? I love tea roses, the ones that produce a single bloom on a stem. I love to cut them and bring them into the house and put them in a vase and admire them. What happens if you put one in a vase with no water? Well, 
it actually looks okay for a bit because it's still benefiting from having been attached to the rose bush. But it doesn't take too long and the leaves begin to wilt and the stem droops and then the petals start falling off. It has no more strength because it has been separated from what sustains it. We are exactly the same way, people, especially spiritually. God has designed it such that we are spiritually sustained by abiding in him. And a major part of that is the sustaining that he does through his people, the church. Why is it that when you and I feel stressed and overwhelmed, one of the first things we want to cut out is gathering with our church family? It's because the enemy knows that we will, be, we will weaken when we remove ourselves from that which God has set up to strengthen and encourage us. Don't fall for his lies. When you least feel like coming is when you most need to. Be honest with God. Tell him how needy you are. Ask him to supply your needs. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. And I want to add that for no one here is this more important than for Chris, Germain, and me. We have the often intimidating task of teaching you what God's word says. But we are human, just like you. We don't get a pass. We are just as needy, just as slow to understand, just as much requiring the Holy Spirit's help daily and just as prone to wander as the rest of you are. Yet, as teachers, James tells us that we will be judged more strictly. And that's why it means so much to each one of us when we get a little note from you, a text perhaps, indicating that you're praying for us. We need and value those prayers of yours. And we need to constantly hold each other accountable to abiding in Jesus, soaking in his word, and staying in communication with him through prayer. Here's the second thing. We need to specifically ask God to open the spiritual eyes of our lost family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. I'm going to read that again. We need to specifically ask God to open the spiritual eyes of our lost family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Acknowledging that it is God who gives spiritual understanding to people, we need to plead with him that he would, in his mercy, open the eyes of the blind, the spiritually blind. Yes, we have a responsibility to do our part, but always, always undertake that responsibility by first bathing it in prayer, that the Holy Spirit of God would do his work first. Okay, so we have considered that spiritual understanding is a gift from God, and at the same time, it is also the responsibility of man. James 1 verse 5 assures us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you are struggling to understand what is being presented to you today, turn to God and ask him to reveal it to you. God's word assures us that it is not his will that any should perish. And so this brings us to our third point. Understanding is a blessed privilege. 
understanding is a blessed privilege. We see this in verses 16 and 17. Here Jesus tells his disciples and us as a consequence, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. If you are here today or listening to this message and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, don't despise the remarkable privilege you have of hearing God's word clearly explained to you. Today, You have heard that your sin has separated you from God and you are under his condemnation. But God, probably my favorite two words in the Bible, but God in his great mercy gave his son to be your sacrifice and substitute, paying off the massive debt that you owed to God and suffering in your place. If you will humbly acknowledge your sin and guilt before God and ask for the forgiveness and salvation that you are offered in Jesus' name, you can be freed to live in close relationship with God. But if you reject his offer of salvation, and it's the only way to be saved, then you may not ever have another chance to come to him. Humble yourself. Accept his gracious offer today. Come and talk to me afterwards if you want to be right with God today, before you leave this room. And brothers and sisters, we of all people know best of all the great privileges we have accessible to us. We have the written word of God to read We have the Holy Spirit to explain it to us. And we have direct access to the throne room of God through prayer. And yet, if you're anything like me, then we are prone to take it for granted. The old proverb, familiarity breeds contempt, is so true, isn't it? I built my kids a treehouse years ago, and they thought it was the most amazing thing ever. They played in it constantly, and they even wanted to do sleepovers in it. It literally became the place they abided. But then, after a while, it wasn't such a great deal. Been there, done that became the theme. And then a friend would come over, and the friend would say with awe and wonder, You have a treehouse? And my kids would say, Oh yeah, we, we have a treehouse. And it, it's cool. And for the next two weeks, they'd be excited about it again. Brothers and sisters, our privilege is so much greater than a treehouse. And yet, we're the same. We get bored with it. It feels mechanical. Our heart just isn't in it. Do you know what we really need? <laughs> we need to invite a friend to come to know Jesus. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to see it work in power in people's lives. We need to see them freed and transformed. And then we'll hear them exclaim, you can read God's word and understand it? You can talk directly to God? And we'll say, oh yeah, I can do that, can't I? Oh, let's fall in love with Jesus all over again. Let's stand in awe of him and revel in the marvelous privileges he has won for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging our hard-heartedness, 
our coldness of heart at times, recognizing how easily we buy into the lies of the enemy. We're, we're so fickle and you are so faithful. Lord Jesus, I pray you would reignite our hearts for you. Let us see you with fresh eyes again. Help us to return to our first love, the love we had with you when first you drew us to you. Jesus, we recognize that abiding in you is a discipline. It takes intention. It takes determination. It takes an act of the will. Give us the strength we need to choose you first each day to remember whose we are and let our lives point to you always for your glory. Amen.